This is Friends of Europe. For more, go to friendsofeurope.org. Ladies and gentlemen, before I uh, introduce the subject and the speakers uh, for the first of our panels, uh, you can see uh, here up on the screen the sponsors of today's uh, uh, meeting. Uh, and as always, uh, Friends of Europe is grateful to NATO. Uh, I had no role in that whatsoever, I guarantee you, uh, to UCOM. Uh, uh, with Wayne Robbie here representing UCOM. Glad to see you, Wayne, of course. Uh, I think this is your first outing at Friends of Europe and hopefully uh, the first of many. Uh, young professionals in uh, foreign policy. Uh, I don't personally qualify for that category of age any longer, uh, but it's very good to have them involved. Uh, and finally, of course, in a debate focusing on Europe, uh, inevitably but naturally uh, the uh, European Union and in particular the uh, Institute uh, for uh, um, uh, Citizens uh, Program. So thank you very much for that. Uh, now, uh, for the first session, we're going to look at the role of uh, new technologies and capabilities. Yap already, uh, with Sir Julian, sort of framed that out a little bit by talking about cyber, about artificial intelligence, but we'll now try to get more deeply into these uh, uh, topics. Um, the overall theme of this uh, conference is Brave New World, which, of course, is the title of a book by Aldous Huxley uh, back in the 1920s, which uh, uh, charted a very dystopian view of the uh, future, uh, although some of the authoritarians around Europe at the moment uh, may find that a very attractive uh, vision. Uh, not me, but um, the Brave New World that we would like uh, is one that uh, generally is a brighter uh, vista for uh, European security and of course technology plays a key part in that and anybody who's ever dealt with technology knows that there is one slogan that always applies which is that the present is already in the past uh, and the future is, is, is now. In other words, anything, everything that one thinks is a futuristic development one finds is already embryonically already uh, with us uh, uh, here. Technology drives defence, of course, uh, both for good and bad. That's what uh, uh, Sir Julian was saying about the internet in, in particular. Uh, but uh, it's also been for many years, particularly when I worked at NATO, uh, the technological edge uh, that managed to uh, keep NATO ahead of the curve and was the foundation of our deterrence. Uh, we may not have had the quantity of the old Warsaw Pact, but we could offset that, of course, uh, with uh, quality, creativity and innovation. But, of course, everybody knows uh, that that's much harder to do these days in a world where increasingly the technology is being invented in the civilian sector and then transferring to the military. Uh, and secondly, where, and the YAP was mentioning this too in the first session, other uh, powers like China, Russia, but not only them, uh, Brazil, Israel, uh, I could name many, uh, are very much now in the game of high technology and, it, and no longer simply copying what we do, but increasingly inventing those technologies in the first place. Uh, some of you may have seen just a couple of days ago, DARPA, the American Defense Advanced Research Projects Research Agency, had its annual conference with the Pentagon. Always very interesting in seeing all of the gadgets that are coming to a theater near you soon. Uh, and there was a lot of talk about you know, all of the U.S. military uh, services getting onto one single cloud uh, system uh, called JEDI, for appropriately. Uh, smart uh, micro-satellites that can reprogram themselves intelligently and go off to replace a satellite that may have been taken out of action. Uh, 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 increasingly, also uh, large numbers of uh, small drones in different forms of configuration. And a basic philosophy, which I found very interesting, that the future of military technology is no longer for incredibly expensive but very few platforms, think of the F-35, but increasingly a kind of, you know, like razors, throwaway razors, uh, as opposed to the old conventional expensive razor, something which is, does a function, is cheap, uh, can be quickly uh, replaced, but is not necessarily designed to last for very long. Anyway, I think for us uh, in the room today, uh, what we really want to know are, first of all, uh, is Europe uh, up uh, in the game here? Uh, if not, uh, how can Europe catch up? Uh, the European Defence Fund, PESCO, are these vehicles that could uh, drive the uh, European developments? What should we be looking at, you know, when everybody's talking about cyber, artificial intelligence, uh, robotics, uh, and new materials? Uh, you know, what are the most promising technologies that we should be looking to develop? What are the threats, but also the opportunities? 
for Europe uh, in moving in this uh, uh, direction. And, uh, uh, of course, uh, as always, when new technologies come onto the market, and this was true, of course, of the crossbow that was outlawed by the Vatican uh, in the 13th century. Uh, so this is an old debate. When a new technology comes onto the market, think of autonomous weapon systems with potentially uh, quite difficult ethical uh, consequences. Again, this came up in the first uh, session. Uh, should Europe's line be to uh, act as a spearhead of... Uh, a debate uh, in the UN internationally about norms, putting the toothpaste back into the tube before it's fully out of the tube. Uh, in cyber, we've seen, of course, some progress on confidence-building measures, even if our hopes for a sort of universal code of conduct on cyber in the UN group of experts have not yet borne uh, fruit. Can th this cyber paradigm apply, for example, to AI or to autonomous weapons uh, systems? So I think lots of big issues to get through. Only an hour to do it, so I'm going to have to stop speaking immediately uh, to allow that to happen and say that we're very pleased to welcome on the first panel uh, Lowry Evans, uh, the Director General in the European Commission for the Internal Market, Industry, Entrepreneurship and SMEs, uh, but also uh, to tell us a little bit about how the Defence Fund uh, can contribute. Uh, thereafter, Edvinas Kurtzer, thank you very much, Minister, uh, for coming today, the Lithuanian Vice Minister of Defence. And Lithuania, as, as those of you in town know, is spearheading uh, one of the PESCO projects on cyber rapid response, in which we in NATO have a keen uh, interest, to tell us a little bit also about how these new technologies are affecting the security area. Uh, we have an expert, Frank Sauer, uh, from the academic world. He's the senior research fellow and lecturer at the uh, Bundeswehr uh, University in, 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 in Munich. Uh, and then finally, uh, as I mentioned at the end, what are the humanitarian consequences? We in Europe just can't think of military efficiency without also thinking of the humanitarian aspects and consequences. Uh, that is a key part of the debate. Uh, and Mary Warham, uh, the global coordinator of the campaign to stop killer robots, so she'll tell us if she's doing a lot of stopping at the moment, uh, uh, will also uh, then enlighten us. So, uh, dear panellists, uh, here are the seats, all warmed up by... Uh, Yap and Sir Julian, uh, well, two of them at least uh, for you. Uh, and uh, please, as you uh, take your seats, ladies and gentlemen, uh, also think uh, of this uh, debate, where I put it, debating security plus. Here we go. Uh, this uh, uh, was the uh, Friends of Europe global uh, online conversation on defence and security that took place in the spring. And many of the issues that on technologies which we're going to be looking at today came up uh, when uh, the uh, great uh, blogosphere uh, across the world was asked her to come up with ideas and let me draw your attention in particular to number two uh, the idea of to create an international code of conduct on the military use and security implications of AI. If any of the panelists have some thoughts on the feasibility uh, of that particular idea uh, I think we would be delighted to hear from them uh, and of course many other good things uh, to read in this debating European Security Plus report available uh, to uh, day. Uh, so uh, uh, with that, a uh, very brief introduction. Uh, Larry, please, welcome. Uh, good to see you. I think last time it was in, uh, up in Helsinki when we had the hybrid warfare retreat. Thank you very much for being here today. Uh, please kick us off then uh, with your thoughts on these issues. Thank okay. You. Thanks a lot, Jamie. Um, I'll just sketch out what it is we are doing from the industry policy side. Uh, this is a very small piece of the jigsaw in terms of the enormous complexity of the entire security and defence area. And I think I need to be absolutely sure that you understand, everybody in the room understands, where the responsibility of the EU starts and stops and where the responsibility of the member states remains. So, you know, the main message I will have is that the EU part of this puzzle remains very small but has begun at this stage. So my piece of the jigsaw, the Commission's piece of the jigsaw, is the European defence industry. And we start that analysis with an absolutely banal observation. We all know that there is no such thing as a European defence industry. There is enormous fragmentation across the EU. 
that industry has been organised by each member state in a separate way. So there is no single market for defence. So the benefits for that industry of the EU machinery, the existence of a single market, does not exist for defence. So there is no single market for defence because the member states have been behaving in a particularly regalian manner. And this doesn't make sense economically, but it also doesn't make sense militarily. Um, we, there's inefficiency in terms of military outcomes, and there's inefficiency also in terms of the money that's being spent. Uh, there's a lot of pictures of charts about how many systems there are in Europe compared to how many systems there are in the United States. And uh, this is very useful to, to remind ourselves. There are 178 types of weapon systems in the EU. There are 30 in the US. It costs a lot of money to develop 178 different systems. And then you don't have very big markets for any of them. And the worst thing is, in a sense, militarily, is that these things don't talk to each other. So if we are continuing to develop individual member state type systems that do not talk to each other, that doesn't work from a military perspective either. So duplication of resources, massively inefficient investment, and this world is going to finish unless it's reformed. There won't even be a member state-based defence industry unless this world changes. And industry understands that, and actually the member states understand that now as well. Costs are going up, the technology is changing. So there is a political will to have a much more cooperative approach to this, but it's easier said than done. And this is where the EU comes in. The EU comes in to facilitate cooperation. This is what we do. Only this, in a way. Facilitate cooperation, or another way of looking at it from an economic perspective, is to de-risk the costs of cooperation, to de-risk the collaborative investment. And the, it's not nothing to put EU money on the table to achieve that. And this is what the next uh, post-2020 financial programming is proposing to do. So the proposal is to put 13 billion euro on the table for the seven years post-2020, which is basically leveraging cooperation. That's the point. It's a mechanism designed to get the member states to agree to cooperate, to collaborate on research and all the way through to development, and the EU pays for a bit of it. So, for example, prototyping. That's often the valley of death for any emerging technology in terms of going through to industry development. So what would success look like would be much more collaborative approach amongst the member states for prototypes. So the EU would put... 20% of the money on the table, the member states would agree that if the prototyping was successful that they would buy it, so we create the market, and this unlocks collaboration. So it's incentives. It's putting incentives on the table. The member states are absolutely keen to do this. The European industry is absolutely keen to do this. But you know, beyond the basic industry logic... You know, do we want to have any European industry in the future against the technological shifts? There is also a political logic. The geopolitical picture is changing very fast. So there's also a strategic autonomy perspective. I was very reluctant to say those words even one year ago. I'm much less reluctant to say that now because it sounds so intrusive. It sounds so naive in a way. But think about it. Do we really want to be reliant on other people for our defence provision? And unless we actually take some steps to fix some problems in our supply chain or to fix our political responsibility for staying ahead of the game, it increases the vulnerability of this continent uh, and in a way which 
I think would be completely irresponsible. So that's what we're doing. So I can go into more detail, but this is what it is. No, thank you for the interest, We'll have plenty of time, hopefully, for good questions and discussion and give you lots of opportunities to follow up that. But thank you for that very clear initial uh, introduction. Uh, Minister, uh, you have taken up the call of PESCO uh, with your own project. Uh, it would be good to hear how sort of maybe PESCO incentivized you to do something which would you have done it without PESCO or was the, the PESCO framework really the condicio sine qua non? And tell us a little bit about how you think this is going to contribute to Europe's cyber resilience. Um, and welcome again, of course, and thank you for coming. Thank you, thank you. Uh, really, very good question. Uh, but I, I would start from what Mr. Julian said. Uh, I also remember what was 12 years ago in EU when I first came to work here. Uh, and we were far away of security in the European Union uh, in comparison with NATO, for example, where we also have a lot of experience. But over those 10 years, we moved a lot in front. And uh, we have a lot of good initiatives. We have uh, need-to-know principles already inside our systems. Uh, we are talking about diplomatic toolbox. Uh, we are talking about uh, mandates in ANISA. We are talking about cyber rapid reaction teams, right? It's, and, and the kickoff was exactly because someone got a very good idea. Guys, let's do it together, right? We are saying that we are sharing information, cooperating, but actually we are doing, you know, blah, 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 blah. Over those 12 years, we are talking about cooperation between EU and NATO in different formats. But actually, the topic changes. The first, letter, uh, the first uh, word is changing, cooperating in physical security, electronic security, digital security, now cyber security, sharing classified information. The topic never goes away. We are talking and talking. And this was the first time we got an opportunity to sit on a table and figure out what's common inside our countries. And cybersecurity and fake news is something that is very common. Okay, we have different forms, we have different threats, we have uh, spionage, we have terrorists, we have criminals who don't rob banks with sticks anymore. They go and buy some cheap tools on the Internet and, and uh, they write you a social engineering letter pretending themselves being a director and asking to transfer money to an own bank account. And they are successful. Mm. Two days ago in Lithuania, one finance woman sent uh, 98 uh, southern euros to a known bank account because possible director told her to do that, right? It's an issue now. They, they, they find other ways, and we need to find our way. And this initiative was very good because nine countries, already we have nine countries on the table. We have signed declaration of intent, and three countries are th still thinking to join the project agreed to do something and not to share information because it's not working anymore but share competences share people create common tools spend less money by creating unified cyber tools which is very important now we have 28 countries creating 28 honeypot network systems that, that's true. why yes. why why can't they see what's happening in uk or in finland or in poland huh and uh, be able to inform my uh, critical infrastructures, my governmental institutions, that something is happening in Denmark. Yeah? And if we create the one uh, very well-working system, it will be more efficient, I agree with you, because we'll have not 28 systems to, uh, to take care, but one. Right? Why don't we have one cloud EU DDoS protection? You know? DDoS is a very cheap uh, kind of but effective way of doing harm. So if, if you remember two years ago, after Russian aggression in Crimea, there was a conference in, in Lithuania, in Parliament, and we wanted to have a video translation online, but someone bought a cheap DDoS you know, attack, and Parliament uh, video translation was abused. But if we could have a huge DDoS, EU cloud protection, it would be too expensive for them to, to attack. Yeah? So this is the idea. Another idea is how we fight fake news, right? In Lithuania, we have a lot of uh, experience in fighting them, creating our own tools. We have monitoring systems. We do automated news screening. And recently, we introduced a new artificial intelligence system mm. that in two minutes uh, finds any fake news around all portals. And I introduced it yesterday to, to Commissioner Gabriel, and she was also very interesting. And next week it will be introduced inside Europe. So how we can share this intelligence with other countries? Because all you need to do is just have a translation into your own language, and that's it. 
So these are good examples how we can move forward. And what is very important for me personally that you don't need to have a lot of money or be a huge country to have an initiative. Yeah? So we, being a small but tough country with some experience, can propose what can work in the nearest future. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Th thank you very much. And uh, your point about sort of exploiting better what we already have uh, and not always thinking that it's going to the future and developing something new, that, that I think is a, is, a, is a good point as well. And, of course, in the area of technology, absolutely right. Every EU country, big or small, has niche capabilities that can be useful to everybody else. So PESCO could be as much about spreading knowledge as about actually sort of producing new hardware. Um, many thanks, sir. Frank, I introduced you as somebody who would give us a good strategic overview of Europe's current ability to develop, absorb, exploit uh, for the good, uh, the new technologies. So tell us a little bit more, please. And again, welcome. Yeah, thanks so much uh, for having me. Um, I like to preface this by saying that I'm speaking on my personal capacity here. Now we could tell you're the academic because you're the only one wearing a bow tie. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's what I do. Um, so I'm not sure, like I jotted down a couple of notes when the autonomy and weapon systems issue was raised in the introductory panel, so I'd like to say actually a couple of things, use my five minutes to say a couple of things about that. But I will actually make a real effort to not tell you the things that either you've already heard about uh, or the things that Mary, I'm sure, will be way better uh, in telling you about than I uh, could be. So I am actually, first I should say maybe autonomous weapon systems. What is it all about? Okay, autonomous weapon systems, you've heard this before, are weapon systems that select and engage targets without human intervention. And I'm sure you've heard that there's all kinds of legal problems connected to that. You know, people are worried, is there some sort of accountability gap? Uh, there's a security problem with an arms race and, and maybe instability uh, being created when we hand over control of our weapon systems to algorithms. There's an ethical problem involved. You know, I am of the uh, strong conviction that it is actually an infringement on human dignity to have people, you know, killed on the battlefield by anonymous algorithms. I, should, I think that's something that we, you know, should... That's something that we should put on our own human consciousness going forward. But that's actually not what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to give you a, a couple of facts and figures. And I start with this. The general public does not want this. The general public does not want to hand over control over weapon systems to algorithms in a war. Okay? So a 2014 survey in the U.S. found that a clear majority of people in the U.S. is strongly against this. If you look in, into the data set, here's the academic, that's the bow tie thing. If you look into this data set, it's very interesting to find that the closer the people surveyed were to the military, the more opposed they were to this notion of handing over control to an algorithm. In 2005, an online poll conducted across 14 different languages found the exact same thing. Two-thirds of people said they want an international ban on full autonomy and weapon system. Three weeks ago, a German survey found that 71% of Germans are saying the exact same thing. In July, the Belgian parliament voted to prohibit full autonomy in weapon systems, you know, selection and engagement of targets without meaningful human control, to prohibit this sort of weapons technology for their own military and work towards an, an international ban of uh, this technology. Ten days ago, the European parliament passed with overwhelming majority um, a vote saying pretty much the same thing. So I will reiterate that general public does not want this to happen. Now, one might say, maybe people are not getting it. Maybe there's a pressing military need here that people are not seeing yet. Let me give you two examples in terms of what's actually, actually happening with weapon systems in the military. If I had to sum it up, I'd say autonomy is actually going down, not up. Okay, if you look at, for instance, defensive systems where we have some, had some sort of autonomy for decades, and there's a system called Phalanx, which has a derivative. Um, Phalanx is on ships, and the derivative is called CRAM. The U.S. Army is using it, which is on a flatbed truck. And lo and behold, CRAM is the newer system, and it is not fully autonomous. Why? Because on land, in that specific context, the risks are way too high. The legal risks are too high. The operational risks are too high. And same thing with the loitering munition Harpy that the Israelis have produced. The successor system, Harop, is, again, 
less autonomous because they thought actually having a munition loiter around uh, for 30 minutes and then attacking a target without any human you know, signing off on this is a terrible way to con conduct war. Okay? So the people don't want it. The military actually is very keen on retaining meaningful human control over their weapon systems. That's something that the military is actually really good at. And so we need to look at this and uh, make a draw maybe some conclusions from it. And I would say we're running the risk um, of making a huge judgment error with regard to putting even more autonomy in our weapon systems if we continue down the path that we are currently on. We're overestimating the tactical benefits and we're underestimating the strategic risks. If we continue this path, actually no one really wants it, but we're all stumbling down that path, uh, probably crossing the line that actually no one wants to cross, we have made a gigantic mistake and probably we will not be able to put the toothpaste back into the tube. So what's the answer then? And the answer is, I've got 13 seconds left. Uh, 11. Arms control. <laughs> arms control. We need arms control. Almost no one is talking about arms control anymore. And I think that is something that Europe is actually good at. We've had great conventional arms control in the past. All these things are eroding before our eyes. So I think it's up to my generation and to Europe to bring Europe's full power to the table and make arms control in that uh, area happen. You know, it's a classic downward spiral. We've been here before. I think we can fix it. Thank you. Uh, Frank, thanks a lot. And your observation that it's not just the public that may not want fully autonomous weapon systems, but even military commanders see them as being particularly sort of uh, inefficient or counterproductive, and that could also be a driving force. That, that's an interesting observation. In any case, uh, Mary Frank, I think, has sort of set you up, if I can use that term, uh, very well in terms of what he said. So uh, let's hear from you now. Thank you. Thanks very much. I just wanted to say it's great to be back in Belgium where I spent a lot of time in 1997 negotiating the international treaty banning landmines mm. and that treaty now has been signed by all of the members of the European Union and all of the members of NATO except for the United States. It's held up as the standard bearer for humanitarian disarmament and as the example of how you can address a humanitarian problem late uh, but in a, in a way that prevents further casualties from occurring uh, in the numbers that they were back in the 1990s. It's rare that uh, my organization, Human Rights Watch, you know, participates in every arms concern out there. Uh, but five years ago, we felt so strongly about what we were reading and seeing uh, in military planning documents about autonomy and weapon systems uh, that we decided to do some research of our own. And uh, we looked at uh, the investments that were being made uh, and decided that it was time to launch another coordinated international civil society response here because we were alarmed at the investments made by the United States in the lead, but also China, Russia, Israel, South Korea, and a couple of European nations investing in autonomy and weapon systems. They're not creating killer robots yet, but we're well on the way unless we create some normative guidelines, a, a framework, uh, and we heard about the code of conduct in the report. The mention of a treaty was also in that report, and the precedent was given of the Chemical Weapons Convention, and I think that's a good precedent for us. Um, when you look at past history of arms control, a lot of the effort is focused on weapon systems that become uncontrollable in their very nature. A landmine you cannot control once it is emplaced in the ground, uh, close to munitions have created the same kind of issues, biological and chemical weapons the same, uh, but we did not you know, eliminate the entire field of uh, the chemis chemistry industry just by uh, pro prohibiting the use of a chemical as a weapon in warfare. Uh, and it's similar here on artificial intelligence. Nobody is advocating that we try and prohibit artificial intelligence or prohibit autonomy uh, pr or prevent the military applications there. Uh, we hear from California a lot about how artificial intelligence can be beneficial for humanity, and we see many of those benefits today. But, of course, with that comes the challenges and comes the threats. And for us, one of the greatest threats uh, out there at the moment is what 
happens when you put artificial intelligence into weapon systems, autonomy uh, into weapon systems to the extent that you no longer have meaningful human control over the identification and selection of targets and then the use of force against them. For us, that's a killer robot. But we call for a preemptive ban in the campaign to stop killer robots. That's on future weapon systems. We're not seeking to prohibit existing drones uh, or the phalanx or the other systems that are out there, but we find that it's more useful to talk about the nearer-term technology and these examples rather than try and speculate about the Terminator uh, and Iron Man and the other. You know, everybody's read the book, they've seen the film, they've got their own idea of what a killer robot is, uh, but we're, we're some you know types of fully autonomous weapons may be quite sophisticated, but other ones might be quite rudimentary. So we see a host of issues with these, and Frank has touched on many of them. Um, but probably the, the, the most the one that binds us all together is this moral question of you know how should you be killed on the battlefield by another soldier who can then be responsible for that action and be held to account, uh, or by a machine. Nobody wants to have that argument with the machine on the battlefield. And we're not just talking about the use of autonomy and weapon systems and warfare, but also the potential use in policing and law enforcement uh, on protests and also in border control. There are a host of different circumstances in which autonomy and weapon systems could be used. Um, so is Europe in the game, I think you said in your introduction? France was the first country to get this onto the international agenda back in 2013. There's been a series of diplomatic meetings in Geneva at a place called the Convention on Conventional Weapons. France has led some of those meetings. Germany has led some of those. Uh, currently, India has been doing that. And there's been a host of kind of uh, exploring of the, of the issue, of the parameters of the issue. Uh, and through that process, process, the 20, 26 countries now have come on board our call for a ban on the development, production and use of fully autonomous weapons from Europe to countries, the Holy See and Austria. Uh, and this is another reason why I came to Brussels, was to find out why Belgium is not behind this call uh, and why some of the other European partners who we've worked with in the past are not yet there. And it's disappointing to hear from some of them say, it's premature, we still don't understand the issue, we're still trying to figure this out. Uh, it's been five years since we launched this campaign to stop killer robots, and we do not have the time or the money to waste in diplomacy on inconclusive discussions. Um, so I said that we're not opposed to autonomy, you know, in general. We want to draw a very specific line. We see a lot of investments occurring at the moment, uh, you know, and obviously the European Defence Fund is one of those, and this is the question that we want the investors in that fund uh, and in the other European states to be asking is, what is the nature of human control and the weapon systems that we're t seeking to create here? Uh, are we adequately addressing all of the risks and concerns that are being raised from the operational and technical risks uh, to the proliferation risks uh, to the security risks? And I think it's important to note that a majority of countries now around the world are supportive of moving to negotiate new international law. And that's led by countries from the developing South, from Latin America, from Africa, from Asia, Pakistan. The victim of armed drone strikes says, if this is what's coming next, we want no part of that. Um, you know, you have a couple of countries speaking about potential advantages or benefits, namely Israel and, and the United States, and uh, probably Russia I'd put in that category as well. Uh, but what's Europe doing? Europe's kind of sitting back saying, well, we're undecided, we're not too sure, yeah. it's premature. And this is the part where I'd really like to see uh, some more okay. action here and to see um, an acknowledgement of the members of the European Parliament call, 82% of the members of the European Parliament voted in favour of the resolution calling for new international law. Thanks. So it's good you're here today then and you're delivering that message to the right people and the, the right audience. Uh, just a couple of quick follow-up questions from my side uh, and then, of course, uh, the audience will, will come in. Uh, Director General, uh, one, one question I wanted to ask you is, is PESCO is now well and truly launched and the projects are coming in and the European Defence Fund is coming in. What is the, 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 your role and the role of the Commission? Are you... Uh, uh, 
forgive me for asking this, but mainly sort of putting in the finance and leaving the member states to come up with the projects and get on with it? Or do you see your role as actively steering those member states towards, well, you know, you've got more chance of getting the money if you do this type of project, or this is a kind of common European need, uh, so can I please influence you to uh, take this uh, uh, to heart? I, uh, Mary raised this issue of ethical considerations. Are you doing... Is it necessary a kind of ethical sort of check uh, on, on the projects from a more political, not just technologically, technological perspective before uh, you, you finance them? So it would be a good idea just to get a sense of the actual role of the Commission as this goes forward, uh, you know, hands-on, hands-off, uh, and, and what kind of priorities you're trying to sort of put out there. Because, you know, when it comes to technology, we've heard of so many different things that you could potentially do. Can't do everything at once. So what would you see as the more urgent sort of requirements? Okay. Uh, it is not the EU's job, the Commission's job, to define the priorities. Ah, good. Good right? to know that. So yeah. this is very straightforward. Mm. So the capability priorities are set by the member states. Yeah. Uh, so PESCO, that's the member states as well. So we are paying for cooperation. Right. Okay? So we put out, in effect, calls for proposals, but it's aligned with the defined priorities. So we take the priorities and then we do calls for proposals. The, the risk we have with the European-level instruments is that there won't be enough projects, actually. So the, the other operational risk is that you know, there's a lot of ideas, but bringing these ideas onto the table for financing does involve the member states agreeing to cooperate. They haven't been doing that, Jamie, you know. So I think that they can define the high-level priorities. We take them then the member states have to actually put their own skin in the game and collaborate on projects to deliver those capabilities. And then we put the financing in. And if it's a PESCO project, there's actually further incentivization, as you know. There's a little bit more money on the table. Do they have to get sort of cer a certain distance down the road before you judge the project to be no. mature enough? No. For example, like a memorandum of understanding or something that gives you some sort of, sort of granularity, you know, that this is sort it's, of really holds up, as it were. Yeah, there's... The project has to be scoped and defined, but it depends if it's, if it's at the early research end, you know, it has to be a plausible project. I think the higher higher up the development chain you are, the more complex it is to be able to frame that project. Um, the, the key is, do the member states believe each other that they're going to be doing it? Uh, it's a plausibility check. It's not, you know, it's not science. I think this is politics. It's not science. Let me do the ethics, uh, the ethics part of it, because I think this panel has to deal with that. Um, I echo what Mary says. Um, when we were going through the co-legislative process on the European Defence Industry Development Programme, this two-year precursor programme that we've already uh, negotiated and is out there now, um, the European Parliament was indeed extremely keen and demanding on us to include ethical dimensions into the design of the programme. And we have reflected that in the proposal for the European Development Fund. So... When we are going to be scrutinising the projects, we will put that through an ethical uh, committee, if you like, to scrutinise the ethical dimension of it. And it's also very clear, legally clear, we may not, we cannot fund uh, projects that are not compatible with international law. Now, in this area, of course, the specific area we're talking about today, there is no international yeah, law yet. So I get that. Um, but... Is there an ethical dimension to the, to the story? Yes, absolutely, for sure. Thank you. Uh, Minister, uh, to you uh, again briefly, um, you mentioned uh, that in the cyber area there are various sort of national capabilities which everybody has and that could be sort of shared. Uh, you mentioned the honeypots. Any other thoughts of what you also see out there as duplication at the national level in the cyber field? Uh, for example, could we have a... You know, devil's advocate sort of question. Could we have a sort of a European cyber intelligence agency or something? Uh, it'd be interesting uh, to, to get, because you're obviously looking at this very carefully to get your views of you know, maybe some other things, low-hanging fruit that we could try to sort of look at. Sure, sure. Okay, first of all, one and main rule, nothing to duplicate. Yeah. You can't duplicate anything which is already happening, which is already in place. You need to be supportive. You, you, you need to fill the gap. 
right? My first question, as I know national things, I know how Europe is working, I have a lot of experience in NATO. My first question was, do we know the rules how legally we could come and help EU institutions? Yeah? How legally we could help with cyber tools, with cyber weapons, come and help each other? And how legally could EU help their partners in case they need help in cyberspace? And the answer is, today, we don't have a clue. Yes. Yeah. yeah? Exactly. Kind of simple three questions, and EU, who is talking many, many years, has no clue how to do that. So my job was to have all those countries near one table, yeah, find the interest, and figure out how are they doing cyber? What is their legal framework? Have a discussion with NATO, how we could be linking our capabilities. How legally we could come really and help commission in case there is an attack on their infrastructure. And I'm very glad to say that after half a year, a lot of lawyers from those countries were working in Vilnius. And very soon this year, we will have a, if you wish, Vilnius manual or cyberity manual with a book written clearly what needs to be done to make it happen. So we can talk a lot. Huh? We will help each other. I will help you. Huh? In theory, yes. But in practice, how will you come with cyber weapons to Lithuania and help us in case we need to, let's say, protect our electricity grid? Yeah. Yeah. So we will very soon have the answers. And very soon, with the help of Netherlands, we will mitigate uh, next month a practical uh, exercise in our national uh, exercise scenario that we need some help and we will try to call this team and look how the legal framework is working. So we will very soon tell you what the first experience is. And next year, in, if, if we are successful, we will have first operational team working and training and, 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 and uh, dealing with this issue. When we talk about human rights, I was thinking half of the evening yesterday when Mary talked, um, and, and I see bright side in this uh, um, European initiative because we align with DGPR. Yeah? Previously, we were not talking how we should deal with personal data. Uh, now we are talking with e-privacy. And I was last week in, in conference in, in, in Vilnius. We were discussing how it will reflect business, people's data, and so on. So we kind of have already common rules that must apply in all countries. And whatever tools we will create, whatever initiatives we will do, we will need to deal with GDPR, with e-policy. So human or people data, business data, will be transmitted in a very understandable uh, way, which was agreed inside European Union. So we'll have rules. We will, we will align with that. Thank you very much. Uh, Frank, your very brief question. Uh, at the Bundeswehr University, you no doubt sort of study the posture of uh, the European Armed Forces. I mean, a very general type of question, but what would you think would be the biggest vulnerabilities currently of our European Armed Forces to advanced technologies that, let's say, you know, hypothetical question, Russia, China, maybe some of the other peer competitors are developing, and cyber, electronic jamming, or, you know, what, what sort of things should we be worrying about uh, as we look at you know, the technological protection uh, of our armed forces? Sure. Um, I think it has been mentioned before, maybe it even was, someone raised the F-35 basically as the poster child of the super expensive, you know, a billion dollar, um, you know, single weapon system. And I think what we're not doing enough is um, thinking, you know, outside of the box and thinking what kind of capabilities we might in Europe, especially, especially as middle powers like Germany, for instance, be able to create um, by... Yeah, using the razor systems that you said, yeah, using cheap systems, swarms of systems. We're, we're not really sure if, that, if it'll pan out the way we think. Maybe you end up, because of all sorts of requirements like hardening and everything, um, that, that this notion of, of a swarm uh, that would create a new capability on the battlefield that would be way cheaper um, uh, is, is really um, you know, as, advantageous as, as advantageous as some people make it out to be. But, I mean, if you look at it from the flip side, the U.S. now is really concerned with air superiority, okay? So they are really thinking about what they can do for their ground troops in terms of, you know, getting them covered from these small, uh, you know, 
very, very cheap systems that might you know, do damage to them, and firing a stinger at them is not very cost-effective. Yeah. So they're thinking about all sorts of electromagnetic weapons, laser weapons, everything, uh, which would be a cost-effective way to deal with that sort of threat. But I will say one more thing, just to couch it a bit more in, in, in the you know, military reality again. Just in case someone's thinking, I'm arguing for you know, stifling weapons development or... You know, I, I, sometimes I get uh, asked the question, but you're, you're so against full autonomy weapons. Should we keep you know, bombing people from 30,000 feet? That's not what I'm saying. That's the red herring. I think we can you know, keep uh, making weapons better in terms of more precision capable, making them you know, capable of preventing even more damage to civilians and civilian infrastructure. We can do all that, and in fact, we should be doing all that. But, and this is the key notion, while doing so, we need to retain meaningful human control over the weapon systems as well. And it's not an either-or thing. We can do both things. Let me one more thing, maybe plug a thing. I'm part of an expert group called the International Panel on the Regulation of Autonomous Weapons in the international group put in place by the German Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And we go into great detail by you know, constructing specific scenarios and looking at the military implications of full autonomy in weapon systems. And it's, in fact, one of the things that we found out, that you can have it Actually, you can have your cake and eat it, too. You can have new, modern, precision-capable weapons, but you do not have to give up um, human control, which is you know, a thing that we want to retain for all the ethical and legal reasons that have been okay. raised. Frank, thanks. Uh, and then final, very brief question and answer, please, Mary, and then uh, everybody, I hope, is primed in the audience to come forward with their questions. Uh, but you, you talked a lot about the ethical legal framework, but just one sort of point of detail. Uh, are these killer robots or autonomous, semi-autonomous weapon systems, they already, are they already being used somewhere? Uh, I don't know, Syria, or have you, have you come across a battlefield somewhere in the world where you're seeing these, or at least the precursors, already in action? Uh, how much time do we have uh, before this becomes a kind of irreversible reality? Three years, five years? Just a, just a sort of sense of the current state of play would be very useful, I think, for the audience. Certainly. Uh, the first report that Human Rights Watch issued on this topic was called Losing Humanity back in November 2012, and we included a chapter on what we called precursors to fully autonomous weapons. And these were weapon systems with some autonomy in some of their functions, but not the full autonomy in the critical functions of selecting and engaging targets. Um, that's the part that is yet to come. That's the part that we're on the borderline. And when we did that report, we interviewed a, a bunch of different artificial intelligence experts and roboticists and asked them, you know, uh, how far off are we? Because this is the big question. And, and we said within the next uh, two to three decades, but now that has been brought forward in recent years by the technologists themselves, saying within years, not decades. Uh, and I'd say that there are several weapon systems out there that we regard as borderline systems that we are deeply concerned about. Frank mentioned some of them, uh, but we're not pointing to them and saying, that, aha, that's the killer robot yet. But it's a constant uh, debate that we have internally in the campaign um, is, 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 is when we remove that word preemptive because it changes the entire dynamic of what we're trying to achieve. At the moment, it's a preventative effort uh, and at a preemptive ban. But once we say that they're out there, it turns into a different kind of instrument. It's non-proliferation. It's the control of the technology and the transfer of the knowledge and the rest of it. Thanks, Mary. Thanks a lot. That was a very, very comprehensive answer. I learned a lot. Uh, right, ladies and gentlemen, your turn. I realise you know, there's never enough time for these things, but we'll do our best. Uh, so please uh, uh, identify yourselves. As we have four panellists, I think it would also speed things up if you would ask one question to a specific panellist, and then all four don't have to reply to that question so that we can then fit more questions in. Logical, yeah? Right. Uh, so who will go, go first? Yes, please. Microphone here, please. Thank you. Thank you, Sabine Sessou, journalist. I would like to ask uh, Mr. Kerza just a precision on the nine countries that are talking to each other about sharing competencies and personal. Thank you. Which so, are those? To you, Minister. Which, which countries are already sharing? Okay, so uh, our main stakeholders are France, Poland, Finland, Estonia, Romania, uh, Lithuania, Slovenia. Uh, Germany is uh, aside now talking and, and uh, deciding what to do. Um, Sorry. This would be probably uh, Netherlands, of course. Uh, Netherlands, who are very strong in this field. So our main supporters. 
Thank you very much. Uh, for a minute, I thought we were going to have a Friends of Europe conference without a question for Brooks, from Brooks Tigner, but I'm pleased to say that that will not be the case. So, Brooks, here's over to you. Uh, Brooks and Jane's defense, just a quick question coming back on the killer robot, I guess, for anyone who wants to answer it. Um, I, find, I find the concept and the application hideous for the future. I hope it doesn't happen. But I think we could all agree that no matter how strict uh, any ban might be in place, there are going to be rogue countries and, and rogue groups who are probably going to deploy the weapons. So the, I think the essential question here is on the battlefield and for decision makers, what do our guys do on the battlefield if they are confronted with those who completely launch the systems against their troops? Are you counting on technology just to press the button and allow their robots, the good robots, to kill the others? What, what happens? And what do we do about this? Or well, paralyzing them through cyber attacks or whatever. No, it's an interesting question. I suppose Frank or Mary, really, on this one, maybe both of you briefly would uh, shed some light on Brooks's question. Decide, guys, decide. Okay, I'm, I'm going to go ahead. Mm. So, yes, um, sure. Rogue states, rogue actors, there's not really something you can do about that. Um, uh, generally speaking, we see that with chemical weapons in Syria. But still, I mean, we do have a norm about this, and we're all pointing our fingers as the international community and saying, here's the norm, and it's being broken, and we're trying to do something about it. So it's not really um, an argument for not having any norm in the first place. That's, what, that's number one, what I would say. And having it, and states military sticking to it, will in fact curb the, the real dangerous risks, like the existential risks even, I'd, I'd uh, you know, go out on a limb and say, of you know, cascading algorithm interactions that would make, you know, uh, raise real problems in terms of strategic, uh, tactical and even strategic stability and stuff like inadvertent war breaking out you know, these really these nightmare scenarios that we actually know from the nuclear realm and that, you know, might get reintroduced here and that might get us into all kinds of trouble with processes being so fast that there's no human, you know, fail-safe in there anymore who can, you know, break that chain and, you know, maybe let things cool down. And so if we get at least most of the uh, militaries to stick to that and to hold up that norm, and I'm hopeful that, you know, this is actually something that can be achieved, we're a whole lot better off overall. It won't be a perfect world, but it never is. Uh, Mary, do you have any quick... Uh, I mean, ad yeah, I mean, I think Landmines uh -huh. is a good example to go back to there, where we've got 163 nations that have now signed up to the Landmine Accord, but we still have this problem of what is called uh, improvised explosive devices, and if they're victim activated by the, by the person, that's a landmine, that's an anti-personnel mine prohibited by the Mine Ban Treaty. Who are making and manufacturing and using those? It's non-state armed groups, it's groups like ISIS across Iraq and across Syria. Um, but, you know, you still have the major military powers like uh, Russia and China and the others uh, holding back and no longer using anti-personnel mines, no longer manufacturing them, the vast numbers that they were made in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, so that's where, uh, com coming back on, on Frank's point, norms do matter. Uh, and this is where prohibi prohibitions do matter as well. This is why we seek a ban rather than a complicated series of rules and restrictions in which you would be allowed to use some in certain circumstances and not in others to have a very clear definition of what we're describing here. This is why the approach of human control matters because we want everybody to understand from the greatest military power down to the non-state armed group uh, that the notion of human control is what matters here. And you're not, you know, we want it to stigmatize the notion that you will, you, you, that it's okay uh, to, to, to set up a weapon system that can select the target and, and fire on it without that notion of human control. Okay. That's the whole rationale. Mary, thanks a lot. Uh, Robin at the back there. Um, Robin with uh, NATO Cyber Defense. Uh, a question generally for the panel. Um, is there any scenario, I'm sensing a lot of unity on the, the position here with uh, automated weapons. Is there any scenario where you can see automated weapon systems uh, being acceptable or viable in a combat scenario? Uh, especially thought comes to mind would be air-to-air uh, -air combat where uh, you'd be saving pilots' lives potentially uh, from getting lost and uh, the ability of the planes to perform maneuvers that are G-forestifying and so on would be immense. So is there, and the potential for uh, collateral damage as well would be greatly reduced in that scenario. Is there anything like that where you can see it would be 
viable or okay, ethically Robert, acceptable? Thank you. Uh, Frank picks up the microphone, which suggests that you're volunteering on, on this one, Frank. So please yeah, go I, can, ahead. I can make this really brief. It, the one thing really is um, automated, what we have been calling automated defense. Um, so systems like, for instance, Patriot Air Defense have already, have already been basically autonomous. You can put Patriot in a mode that it'll fire a, a missile at a target and then give you basically a printout. And what I would say is um, that we will keep using this. We must keep using this. If we're talking about hypervelocity projectiles, maybe five, ten years down the road, we will have to have automated defenses because no human will be able to push the button in, in time. But, but, and here's the thing. Remember what I said about how the military is super cautious about doing this you know, everywhere, all the time? Context is what matters. If you're firing at an incoming munition, fine. Go fully autonomous, I'm happy with that. As soon as you're targeting people or inhabited objects or anything like that, then you have to have meaningful human control. So actually, I think it's a very clear answer, and it also goes to show that we're not uh, like all of a sudden throwing out stuff like defensive systems because we're banning killer robots. Okay, that's another red herring. We can keep using those, and you can sh keep shooting at munitions all day, every day. But do not fire without human, uh, human control at uh, inhabited targets or humans. That's my answer to that. I, I recognize Thomas Falasek, a well-known figure here at Carnegie, former Slovak ambassador to NATO. Thomas, I know you're looking at artificial intelligence, so are you going to ask a question on that? I will, I will. It's, it's on autonomous weapons, very much in the spirit of the uh, previous question. But let me actually begin with an answer. J J Jamie, you asked how close are we to the breakout moment where autonomous weapons are used. I don't know the date, but people who track these sort of things at your old shop and my old shop, NATO, tell me that 10 to 12 different allies have fairly advanced systems under development, which probably, Mary, goes a long way towards explaining why you find so little interest in Europe in signing on to the, uh, to the ban. My question is to you, Mary, um, just to examine the ethical question more fully, uh, because I share everybody's horror here of being confronted with a weapon with which you can't reason. Um, but um, just to examine it more fully, let me make the obvious point, which is that the argument doesn't run, the ethical argument doesn't run completely against autonomous weapons. Human beings are not a particularly good executor of things uh, having to do with uh, war and death. You know, Sleep-deprived 18-year-olds make mistakes. People who put maps and embassies on maps make mistakes. Um, couldn't there be an argument that perhaps a machine that isn't sleep-deprived, uh, that is actually dispassionate, that makes decisions in times and doesn't let the bad guys escape, such as we did at Tora Bora, and do a lot more damage over the next few years, may actually be a more ethical uh, way of persecuting war than, than fallible humans? Interesting question. Uh, Mary, probably this has uh, cropped up in your debates already. Yeah, though, right? I mean, come on. The first uh, UN meeting on killer robots, which was the all-male series of panels, uh, they were talking about how killer robots won't rape, they won't pillage, they won't steal, they won't do all of these war crimes that currently uh, are undertaken at the moment. And you know what happened? That argument backfired spectacularly because the militaries on the delegations at that government meeting said, you're offending our honor and valor here and our ethics of how we fight wars and you're accusing us of doing all of these things right now? We're not. So how dare you kind of say that the machines are going to do it better than us? I think there's a, a huge debate going on at the moment inside <laughs> militaries that we don't even see. We've got no idea. But there is a big debate at the moment between the technologists who want the new, the better, the more sophisticated things, uh, the boots-on-the-ground guys who, who know the importance of engaging with national communities and the rest of it. Um, but, yeah, I, I totally accept that there can be ethical arguments, moral arguments made both ways, but I, I totally think that the, the weight of uh, the concerns far outweigh any potential advantages uh, or benefits uh, there. Um, and maybe just to say that, you know, we hear a lot about this arms race for artificial intelligence and, and superiority and, and Putin's uh, great quote that gets repeated all the time. But it's really a talent quest uh, for the people who know how to program, who the programmers, the, the people who know how to do the artificial intelligence. And that's where I think if, if we've got the militaries who don't want this, we've also got the programmers who do not want this. And I cannot tell you how many people have contacted me from Google over the summer alarmed at the Project Maven and the potential of working with the Pentagon and signing their internal letter and doing all of that. Um, but they took a strong line and Google listened. Google issued their ethical principles 
Brussels uh, in July, uh, committing not to design or develop artificial intelligence for use in weapons. That was a very clear statement, and it's one that uh, gives us confidence that we're on the right track here. Of course, there are many other big companies that should do the same. Mary, thanks. Uh, human psychology, as always, is the beginning and end of everything. Uh, time for one final one, and uh, Terry Schultz is there. Again, a Friends of Europe meeting would not be complete without a question from Terry. No, no, well, I'm like, not in Brooks's League or anything. Ah, but... don't, don't misunderestimate uh, <laughs> yourself, as George W. Bush would have said. Terry. Thank you, Jamie. Um, I'm Terry Schultz with the National Public Radio and, and Deutsche Welle. Um, and I mean, I'm not as technically um, astute as Thomas or anyone, but um, my question is about, so, sort of to wrap it up, I mean, when, when there started to be drone killings, there was also a huge debate. And people were talking constantly about whether these guys, the joystick pilots, should really be killing people. And now that seems to have completely fallen by the wayside. I mean, maybe there are in, in pockets still some debate about this, but we're already on to the next level. Um, the, ne the next technology and the next l level of removal from, from human, human control or, or human input. Um, and I'm wondering, does anybody on the panel want to address that? I mean, has the drone pilot, has, has the drone pilot issue already been just overtaken by events? Um, because when, when we speak about um, completely autonomous weapons, you're talking about not even having somebody with a joystick. Um, and you say that it's okay as long as there is some kind of human input. I'm wondering if that, if that works for you, if that's enough for you. Maybe this wasn't quite a good wrap-up question, Jamie, but thanks uh, for No, Terry, anyway. I think a very good question, uh, and not just because I know you well. Uh, it's, that it's, it, it's an interesting point. Uh, we've sort of jumped uh, onto a different level of problem, maybe without having resolved a previous level. But on the other hand, turning your question around, Terry, did we learn some useful things from dealing with the previous level, you know, like the, the guy in a nuclear capsule in Wyoming who's in charge of pushing the button. And the, the, you know, have we learned some things maybe which could help us a little bit uh, to solve the uh, autom autonomous weapon system uh, issue? Uh, anybody want to take that on? Minister, please. Thank you. Perfect question, actually. Uh, I'm thinking a lot about that. And uh, the first idea that comes to my head is that if you want to win a war, have an advantage, you need to do something better than your opponent is doing. And the opponent does not care about human rights normally. They don't care about your life. Uh, they finance criminals. They steal. They do everything that normal democratic countries are not doing. So you need to kind of turn on your mind into how they are doing, how they are thinking, and try to figure out how not crossing the line be ahead. So, you know, it's always a line between human rights, uh, things that needs to be done right, and bad things. And when I think about artificial intelligence, I also understand that cyber artificial intelligence might kill people. Because if an attacker attacks from a hospital, my infrastructure, and my artificial intelligence decides that it's an enemy and attacks the system which is inside the hospital, it can disconnect the network and a patient who is lying and waiting for a surgery might die because the system is not working. So risk and age is always somewhere. Uh, that's why I said it's a very good question, but I'm pretty sure we are trapped, a little bit trapped, and we will still need to go in this direction. Yes, a human will be always somewhere around. But remember, humans program, humans create, and humans make mistakes also. Yes, unless we reach some point in the distant future when it's the machines that uh, sort of govern us. Uh, but hopefully uh, uh, not before the next uh, Friends of Europe uh, conference on the, on the subject. Uh, let me uh, uh, thank everybody. Uh, first and foremost, of course, uh, uh, the, the speakers... Uh, Lowry, thank you very much indeed, Director General. Uh, 
Edwina, Minister, thank you very much again, Edwina, for coming all the way down from Lithuania. Thank you. We appreciate that effort considerably. Uh, Mary, passionate and clear uh, as always. And again, I hope this was also a good platform for you to get your message across to the Brussels community. And finally, Frank, thanks a lot for your, all of your expertise, both on the technological as well as on the ethical side of the issue. My takeaways uh, are simply that technology these days has to be looked at across the entire spectrum. Uh, to be secure, you have to do everything from fake news uh, to space. Um, pooling uh, of systems, it's not a, a new idea, but there's still a great deal of scope, we heard from the Minister, uh, to do that uh, uh, across the European Union. Uh, let's make better use of what we already have as we seek to develop the new technologies. Um, we also heard that, that uh, it's important to work, as always, on the politics as much as on the technology uh, so that you can share in a crisis situation and have uh, support, a rapid response, solidarity from other EU member states. And, uh, and believe it or not, uh, there's always a lot to do in that particular area. Uh, and I think also the Director General pointed out that uh, as the Commission and the EU looks at these areas, it does factor in ethical considerations. The uh, European Parliament is very much uh, on its toes there. Uh, and the data protection I issue is a, perhaps a very good example on a very complicated issue of cybersecurity and privacy where uh, the EU has worked long and hard uh, to set the standard uh, for data protection globally. Can we now take that very good example to some of the other areas uh, and we heard from Mary that certain individual EU states like France are now taking up the, the baton uh, of looking at the ethical issues but to what degree should that now become a European uh, EU wide uh, effort in the way for example that the EU has worked very hard at developing the international law of space and confidence building measures in space so uh, uh, we will return to that on a future occasion for the time being uh, everybody needs a coffee break and everybody's going to get a coffee break I would ask ask you politely to be back at uh, yes at uh, or 12 12 where i hand the baton uh, over to uh, paul taylor uh, who needs no introduction uh, and he will then uh, chair the final session on the future of uh, alliances so uh, again a big a warm hand of applause for our four panelists